On the line now, and thank you for holding Dr. Leon Wagner, forensic pathologist. Leon, thank you very much for your time. Good morning to you. How difficult is it um, in, um, to, to determine if you are looking at the contents of a, of, of a deceased stomach, how difficult is it to determine when that food had been ingested in the first place? Is it a, can it be an exact science or is there a certain amount of guesswork to it? A lot of guesswork. It is not an exact science because anything of the gastric content is determined by physiological factors. It is determined by emotional factors. And if any medication is involved, that is also affected by medication. And of course, I would think if any previous uh, therapeutic incisions or surgery had been done, that also affected. So it is definitely not a very exact time. How, how exact can you be? Is it, uh, if you, we're talking, giving a, trying to predict a time, is there a, a time period where you'd feel comfortable in saying it's about five, six hours? Or is there a time reference where you feel you, you can be a little bit more precise? Because the, 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 the average on gastric emptying it varies from person to person and it will vary between half an hour to six hours. So there is no set time. We generally would accept that after four hours the uh, stomach would be empty. But that is just a general assumption. It is, it is definitely not an exact science. If you find a small volume of food, you do not know what's the volume of food that was consumed in the first place. Yes. So it's back from a small volume, a residual volume, what was the interim phase, how many minutes, hours, that is definitely not accurate. Uh, well, we've seen now that various articles are being uh, consulted. Barry Rue's gone off to go and have a look at the articles that were referenced by Professor Simon. I presume then that there is a fair amount of literature on this, medical literature on this very topic. Yeah, there's a lot of literature on this particular topic, but it is not a very concise and not a very precise uh, science. In other words, uh, one article would say this, other would say that. This just confirms, you know, that this is not an exact science. You cannot determine by the quantity of gastric contents present in the stomach at what time it was consumed. You cannot. Okay. There's well, no method. That's very interesting to see how then Barry Rue is going to deal with this one. We've also got the issue of how much urine is in the bladder. And, Leon, is, is that also something that is not an exact science? Uh, I know yeah. Professor Simon was talking about the effect of diuretics, for example. Yes, if a person did use diuretics, there will be a large volume of uh, urine in the blood. Depends on what time, if diuretics were taken, medication was taken, it depends on which was taken and uh, what dosage was taken and at what time. Usually one would find that during the night, everybody would collect a certain volume of urine in the bladder. Mm. But uh, that also varies from person to person, and I'm now assuming that we're not referring to anybody with underlying pathology. If you take a person that's very busy, for instance, uh, the typical type is the bladder, where they do not have sufficient time to enter the bladder, the volume that they may contain what have been measured up to over two liters. Yes. So, so uh, there's a wide duration between at which volume a person would go to empty the bladder, whether it's convenient or whether it's a physical uh, urge. Okay, these, uh, a lot of inferences have to be drawn then. As you say, it's not an exact science here, so it's going to be very interesting <laughs> to see how it's worked out in court. Sorry, you were going to say something there? Um, no, I don't think one can use the volume of urine uh, to extrapolate what time mm. had been uh, involved between the last time of eating the bladder and the volume that is at present. Because invariably, when you remove the bladder during a post-mortem, uh, you waste some of the urine due to manual pressure 
whilst removing the bed as such. Okay. So it is definitely not accurate. Leon, have you ever had the, I would suggest the misfortune of having to do an autopsy where the deceased has been killed by these hollow point ammunition, this red talon or black yes. talon uh, bullets? Yes, I was in the 90s, early 1990s, and I was at that time in the USA, and I think the media ran amok with the uh, uh, certain peculiarities attached to this uh, sort of ammunition, and I even said on TV you know, that this ammunition has the capability to sort of crawl around the intestine and cause damage, which is a lot of nonsense anyway. Yes. So yes, I have uh, exposure, or I had exposure to this particular ammunition, I know the black talon ammunition, and there's a certain aspect uh, which is more legal argument, but uh, which I would, would just like to mention to you, because it doesn't seem to me whether this had been addressed yet. Mm-hmm. If you had to fire a gun in the dark through a door, the question must be asked, what is the effect of an intermediary target such as the door on the trajectory of the of the bullet? Yes. First of all, uh, it absorbs some energy. Secondly, it would cause an unstable bullet. Otherwise, it deviates from its track. So you cannot uh, predict where it's going to land. And thirdly, in the type of bullets such as the black color, hollow points, etc., with the whole idea that this should distort immediately. So now you find that so as soon as the bullet has passed through the door, you have a bullet with less energy, you have an unstable flight pattern, and you have a distorted bullet. Now the question which comes to mind to me is that, can you predict that you're going to eat somebody with such a shot? Mm. The answer is no. Can you foresee that you might eat somebody? The answer is yes. yes. But that is legal argument. Yeah, that's so right. As soon as you shut through the door, you have no control over the... Uh, trajectory anymore. It could move left, it could move right, down, whatever the case may be. But that is that is, that is the legal argument where it's going to see is whether they're going to argue whether this was a thing shot uh, or not. Yes, I understand the, the foreseeability, and then we could go take it to the next level about what the the reasonable man would perceive. Uh, I, that's, a, as you say, a completely legal argument that one would be involved in. In your view, once these uh, black talon bullets have struck an, inter, an intermediate object such as a door, are they already fragmented at that stage, or are they vulnerable and about to fragment? No, they, will, they are not fragmented, because if you take the, what, what is the construction of the internal door, it's usually a combination of very thin wood and the, the, the and cotton. So in other words, a box uh, or paper. Yes. You know, so this is not a very sturdy door, such as an outdoor, uh, outside door, for instance. But nevertheless, this would induce the, the the fragmentation of the bullet and the deformation of the bullet as such. That would already occur at that stage. So when it is its target, and we refer to this as terminal ballistics, uh, one has to look at the how the kinetic energy is transferred by the uh, bullet, which is determined by its uh, density and, of course, its shape and its stability. Yes. Uh, when I was chatting to you a little earlier, Leon, and we had the lousy line and the, the the dogs having a bit of a bark, you were talking about the the medical ethics at play, and I, I must admit I'm being impressed with the the kind of argument that Professor Simon put up, uh, the eloquence with which he argued his point when he said that he would prefer the the audio stream, the broadcast stream, to be curtailed while he gave his evidence, but not saying the court must be cleared. The normal reporting could take place according to the normal rules. But he spoke about these ethical rules, do no harm, always try to do good, respect for autonomy of patient, do what the patient would have wanted. Are those things that are ingrained in, 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 in people in your profession? Is this all very familiar language that he is using here? No, 
differently. I mean, I understand the ethical aspects. I mean, you've got to take into consideration the relatives, friends, etc., of the deceased. I mean, take it for instance, somebody shows uh, graphic evidence photos of, say, your daughter in court. You're not going to be happy whatsoever. Yes. So it's unethical for me, so I agree with that in that, that that's really, really hard. But you still have, on the other side, the moral obligation to assess justice. So where do you draw the line between the moral obligation and the ethical uh, aspects as well? That becomes very difficult. Uh, what I did in court usually is that I would inform the judge that it's going to be graphical. Yes. And that uh, I would always suggest that he gives the opportunity, except for the accused, of course, is the opportunity for the relatives to whether they would like to stay or not. Yes. I understand. You know, I don't think that to make, make, make that decision. So give the option uh, to the people, because one should bear in mind that I do not think the general public in South Africa has really been educated sufficiently to be exposed to the harsh traumatic pathology of forensic medicine. Yes, yeah, so you do want, you want that forewarned. Uh, Professor Simon referred to people being forewarned. He wanted information to come out to be filtered controlled, done in a responsible manner. Is Are those all conditions with which you would have agreed? Uh, theoretically, yes. But in practice, it is not applicable. How do you filter? Do I, do I filter according to my um, uh, rules or do I filter according to the public's rules? Yes. So, so in, in theory, it's good. In practice, it doesn't work. If, if if you had been taking the stand, would you have also raised immediately the the kinds of concerns that uh, Professor Simon had raised? Uh, had raised. Yes. What what one would usually do in court, you would say to the judge that it is against your ethical and moral uh, standards to testify regarding this uh, graphic evidence. And then what is usually done, you would ask the judge, "Do I really have to?" testify regarding this graphic evidence. Then the judge usually would say yes or no. Mm-hmm. But it's not for you to make that decision because you, are morally oblig- you have a moral obligation uh, to assist justice as well. When it comes to cross-examining somebody such as you, a pathologist and an expert in your field, and you've got a, now a, an advocate doing the cross-examination uh, how how difficult do you find that particular exercise from your perspective being cross-questioned and somebody who is not an expert in the same way you are an expert trying to trip you up? Is it a frustrating uh, exercise in trying to explain the nature of your work or is it does it tend to be a bit more of a an easier exercise as you are called on to explain something that is so familiar, it, it, so comfortably in your domain and so uncomfortably in his domain? When you testify regarding these aspects, uh, I'll tell you for myself, I'm definitely not uncomfortable because you know the subject is you're well versed in it, it is not a new field. So, the problem that one has is to maintain the balance in trying to explain that is, which is very theoretical, with that is very scientific, in layman terminology, so that the advocate for the defense and the state and the judge understands you. Because it is not an art to use big words, etc., and you're the only one that understands what you're saying. So you've got to compromise in a certain extent by laying, uh, by using layman terminology to explain your findings. Mm-hmm. And the art lies there that your layman terminology that you use, that you're not sort of over-simplifying uh, matters, because oversimplification, again, uh, is green free for, for misperceptions. Yes. So it's an art to testify 
as an expert witness so that you reach both the defense or the threat and the judge or assessors, whatever the case may be, so that they follow you. So you've got to follow their expressions very closely. Uh, you don't even look at the U.S. asking the question. You look at the uh, judge and the assessor mm. mm. uh, to see whether they are following what you are saying. Yes. If you give that a sort of dim expression which you give when you lecture to students, you know, right, you've lost it, uh, try again and sort of rephrase your, your explanation. It's a, it, it, you, I, I'd imagine that you are able under these circumstances to be completely objective. I, 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 I take it you are you, you're giving clear clinical, and I mean that in the correct sense of the word, evidence here, aren't you? Yeah, you know, we, we refer to, uh, you know, you, you're an expert. If you alter the facts, I may alter my opinion. Uh, I'm not going to witness. That I'm definitely not. In other words, I'm not going to say what you want me to say uh, because you're going to benefit by it. You give me facts, I'll do the invitation, I'll give it to you as I see it fit. Yes, that's but right. But I'm not going uh, to, no money can buy your conscience. Yeah, you're not there to incriminate the, the accused, you're not there no. to defend the accused, you're there to assist the court, aren't you? Well, I'm there to assist the court, so I think whether the defense or the state would consult with me, I'll give the same answer. Yes. Uh, I noticed noticed that uh, Kat Simon was asked by uh, Barry Rue how many post-mortems he had done. I think it was between 10 and 15,000. May I ask you the same question, Leon? How many have you done? Can can you estimate? uh, When I went into private practice 15 years ago, I did more than 10,000. So many, how many I've done? Who cares? I mean, 10,000 plus. So, so I'm at ease in the uh, discipline. Uh, yes. I'm probably uh, the advantage by having done military medicine, by having been exposed in Angola at the Civil War to military uh, injuries and explosives, etc., etc. Et by the way, I'm, I'm a gun collector. Uh, I do my own reloading. I'm a hunter and a shooter as well. So, so ballistics uh, is not part of my discipline only, but it's also a point of interest for me. It's personal okay. interest. Oh, okay, fair enough. And I, 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 you, you've also touched on the issue, not only uh, if, if you're a forensic pathologist, that you have to be a skilled person in your craft. You also have to be a, a skilled person in understanding the way the court works and how to explain things to court. So it's it's really is a foot in, in, in two camps there, isn't it? Yes, yes. In other words, you must be able uh, to explain that which is difficult in layman terminology. Because if you lecture to students, and you are not able to explain that which is difficult in easy terminology. It means you don't understand it yourself. Yes. Langenwerfen uh, said, I'm very fond of Langenwerfen saying, he said that the worst person you can get is a lecturer that just knows as much as that the students have to know. <laughs> you must be well-versed in your, your, your discipline. And if you're well-versed in your discipline, I mean, uh, I regard uh, examining it's a thinking scrum, and my personal opinion is I do it. Leon, it's fascinating talking to you. I've, I've, I've really t- taken up a lot of your time. I do thank you f- so much for your indulgence and, uh, and, and uh, for shedding a fascinating light on uh, your world and that world of uh, Gert Simons. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, sir, and have a blessed day to all your uh, listeners. Thank you so Keep much. Well. Keep well. Dr. Thanks. Leon Wagner there, forensic or Wagner. Well, anyway, forensic pathologist. What a fascinating uh, insight we've had there into his world. Uh, my apologies for the, the lousy quality of the line. It was as good as we were going to get, and so we decided to just persist with it. And I hope you were able to do the same. Lee has sent in a, 
uh, an SMS, 32953 is the SMS line, 32953. Lee saying, will journalists be retrospectively tweeting the testimony from Dr. Simon that they were unable to tweet yesterday? Lee, I don't think they've got the time. And I think that uh, the, the, the bus has rolled on, on this one. Here and now, it is more important to get the, the cross-examination of Dr. Simon. And if anybody really does want to get that evidence in chief, I'm going to suggest you just go to the, the online publications, you go to the blogs, you go to, um, unless the bloggers have also moved on, but online publications um, will need to, um, uh, will we'll have this information as well as the newspapers today. So there are plenty of ways to get hold of that information. I, I just think that the journalists are a little too hectic now trying to get uh, the tweeting the testimony that we, we've got at the moment. So the situation we're in at the moment is that 